0: where you can find additional information and resources as well as the episodes for this podcast there is also a link on the website to the facebook page for all things plantagenet okay so now on to the show in the most unholy manner in debauching the people among whom they tarried whether they were friends or foes and in carrying disturbance and ruin into quiet places the French king was jealous of the English king, and the English king was jealous of the French king, and the disorderly and violent soldiers of the two nations were jealous of one another. Consequently, the two kings could not at first agree even upon a joint sold on acre. But when they did make up their quarrel for that purpose, the Saracens promised to yield the town, to give up to the Christians the wood of the Holy Cross, to set at liberty all their Christian captives, and to pay two hundred thousand pieces of gold. All this was to be done within forty days, but, not being done, King Richard ordered some three thousand Saracen prisoners to be brought out in front of his camp, and there, in full view of their own countrymen, to be butchered. The French king had no part in this crime, for he was by that time travelling homeward with the greater part of his men, being offended by the overbearing conduct of the English king, being anxious to look after his own dominions, and being ill, besides, from the unwholesome air of that hot and sandy country. King Richard carried on the war without him, and remained in the East, meeting with a variety of adventures nearly a year and a half. Every night, when his army was on the march and came to a halt, the heralds cried out three times to remind all the soldiers of the cause in which they were engaged, Save the Holy Sepulchre! and then all the soldiers knelt and said Amen. Marching, or encamping, the army had continually to strive with the hot air of the glaring desert, or with the Saracen soldiers animated and directed by the brave Saladin, or with both together. Sickness and death, battle and wounds, were always among them, but through every difficulty King Richard fought like a giant, and worked like a common labourer. Long and long after he was quiet in his grave, his terrible battle-axe, with twenty English pounds of English steel in its mighty head, was a legend among the Saracens, and when all the Saracen and Christian hosts had been dust for many a year, if a Saracen horse started at any object by the wayside, his rider would exclaim, What dost thou fear, fool? Dost thou think King Richard is behind it? No one admired this king's renown for bravery more than Saladin himself, who was a generous and gallant enemy. When Richard lay ill of a fever, Saladin sent him fresh fruits from Damascus and snow from the mountain-tops. Courtly messages and compliments were frequently exchanged between them, and then King Richard would mount his horse and kill as many Saracens as he could, and Saladin would mount his and kill as many Christians as he could. In this way, King Richard fought to his heart's content at Arsuf and at Jaffa, and, finding himself with nothing exciting to do at Ascalon except to rebuild for his own defence some fortifications there which the Saracens had destroyed, he kicked his ally the Duke of Austria for being too proud to work at them. The army at last came within sight of the holy city of Jerusalem, but, being then a mere nest of jealousy and quarrelling and fighting, soon retired and agreed with the Saracens upon a truce for three years, three months, three days, and three hours. Then the English Christians, protected by the noble Saladin from Saracen revenge, visited our Saviour's tomb, and then King Richard embarked with a small force at Acre to return home. But he was shipwrecked in the Adriatic Sea, and was fain to pass through Germany under an assumed name. Now there were many people in Germany who had served in the Holy Land under that proud Duke of Austria who had been kicked, and some of them, easily recognising a man so remarkable as King Richard, carried their intelligence to the kicked Duke, who straightway took him prisoner at a little inn near Vienna. The Duke's master, the Emperor of Germany, and the King of France, were equally delighted to have so troublesome a monarch in safe-keeping. Friendships which are founded on a partnership in doing wrong are never true, and the King of France was now quite as heartily King Richard's foe as he had ever been his friend in his unnatural conduct to his father. He monstrously pretended that King Richard designed to poison him in the East. He charged him with having murdered there a man whom he had in truth befriended. He bribed the Emperor of Germany to keep him close prisoner, and, finally, through the plotting of these two princes, Richard was brought before the German legislature, charged with the foregoing crimes and many others. But he defended himself so well that many of the assembly were moved to tears by his eloquence and earnestness. It was decided that he should be treated during the rest of his captivity in a manner more becoming his dignity than he had been, and that he should be set free on the payment of a heavy ransom. This ransom the English people willingly raised. When Queen Eleanor took it over to Germany, it was at first evaded and refused, but she appealed to the honour of all the princes of the German Empire in behalf of her son, and appealed so well that it was accepted and the king released. Thereupon the King of France wrote to Prince John, "'Take care of thyself. The devil is unchained.' Prince John had reason to fear his brother— for he had been a traitor to him in his captivity. He had secretly joined the French king, had vowed to the English nobles and people that his brother was dead, and had vainly tried to seize the crown. He was now in France, at a place called Evreux. Being the meanest and basest of men, he contrived a mean and base expedient for making himself acceptable to his brother. He invited the French officers of the garrison in that town to dinner, murdered them all, and then took the fortress— With this recommendation to the good-will of a lion-hearted monarch, he hastened to King Richard, fell on his knees before him, and obtained the intercession of Queen Eleanor. "'I forgive him,' said the King, "'and I hope I may forget the injury he has done me. As easily as I know he will forget my pardon.' While King Richard was in Sicily, there had been trouble in his dominions at home— one of the bishops whom he had left in charge thereof, arresting the other, and making in his pride and ambition as great a show as if he were king himself. But the king hearing of it at Messina, and appointing a new regency, this Longchamp, for that was his name, had fled to France in a woman's dress, and had there been encouraged and supported by the French king with all these causes of offence against philip in his mind king richard had no sooner been welcomed home by his enthusiastic subjects with great display and splendour and had no sooner been crowned afresh at winchester than he resolved to show the french king that the devil was unchained indeed and made war against him with great fury there was fresh trouble at home about this time arising out of the discontents of the poor people who complained that they were far more heavily taxed than the rich, and who found a spirited champion in William Fitz Osbert called Longbeard. He became the leader of a secret society, comprising fifty thousand men. He was seized by surprise. He stabbed the citizen who first laid hands upon him, and retreated bravely fighting to a church, which he maintained four days until he was dislodged by fire, and run through the body as he came out, He was not killed, though, for he was dragged half-dead at the tail of a horse to Smithfield, and there hanged. Death was long a favourite remedy for silencing the people's advocates, but as we go on with this history I fancy we shall find them difficult to make an end of, for all that. The French war, delayed occasionally by a truce, was still in progress when a certain lord named Videmar, Viscount of Limoges, chanced to find in his ground a treasure of ancient coins. As the king's vassal, he sent the king half of it, but the king claimed the whole. The lord refused to yield the whole. The king besieged the lord in his castle, swore that he would take the castle by storm, and hang every man of its defenders on the battlements. There was a strange old song in that part of the country, to the effect that in Limoges an arrow would be made by which King Richard would die— It may be that Bertrand de Gourdon, a young man who was one of the defenders of the castle, had often sung it, or heard it sung of a winter night, and remembered it when he saw, from his post upon the ramparts, the king, attended only by his chief officer riding below the walls, surveying the place. He drew an arrow to the head, took steady aim, said between his teeth, "'Now I pray God speed thee well, arrow,' discharged it, and struck the king in the left shoulder." Although the wound was not at first considered dangerous, it was severe enough to cause the king to retire to his tent and direct the assault to be made without him. The castle was taken, and every man of its defenders was hanged, as the king had sworn all should be, except Bertrand de Gournon, who was reserved until the royal pleasure respecting him should be known. By that time, unskilful treatment had made the wound mortal, and the king knew that he was dying. He directed Bertrand to be brought into his tent. The young man was brought there, heavily chained. King Richard looked at him steadily. He looked as steadily at the king. "'Knave,' said King Richard, "'what have I done to thee that thou shouldest take my life?' "'What hast thou done to me?' replied the young man. With thine own hands thou hast killed my father and my two brothers. Myself thou wouldst have hanged. Let me die now, by any torture thou wilt. My comfort is that no torture can save thee. Thou too must die, and through me the world is quit of thee. Again the king looked at the young man steadily. Again the young man looked steadily at him. Perhaps some remembrance of his generous enemy Saladin, who was not Christian, came into the mind of the dying king. Youth, he said, I forgive thee. Go unhurt. Then— Turning to the chief officer, who had been riding in his company when he received the wound, King Richard said, "'Take off his chains, give him a hundred shillings, and let him depart.' He sank down on his couch, and a dark mist seemed in his weakened eyes to fill the tent wherein he had so often rested, and he died. His age was forty-two. He had reigned ten years. His last command was not obeyed, for the chief officer flayed Bertrand de Gourdon alive and hanged him. There is an old tune yet known. A sorrowful air will sometimes outlive many generations of strong men, and even last longer than battle-axes with twenty pounds of steel in the head, by which this king is said to have been discovered in captivity. Blondel, a favourite minstrel of King Richard, as the story relates, faithfully seeking his royal master, went singing it outside the gloomy walls of many foreign fortresses and prisons, until at last he heard it echoed from within a dungeon and knew the voice, and cried out in ecstasy, O Richard! O my King! You may believe it, if you like. It would be easy to believe worse things. Richard was himself a minstrel and a poet. If he had not been a prince too, he might have been a better man, perhaps, and might have gone out of the world with less bloodshed and waste of life to answer for. End of chapter 13 chapter 14 of a child's history of england this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to find out how you can volunteer please visit librivox.org a child's history of england by charles dickens chapter 14 england under king john called lackland At two-and-thirty years of age John became King of England. His pretty little nephew Arthur had the best claim to the throne, but John seized the treasure, and made fine promises to the nobility, and got himself crowned at Westminster within a few weeks after his brother's death. I doubt whether the crown could possibly have been put upon the head of a meaner coward, or a more detestable villain, if England had been searched from end to end to find him out. The French king, Philip, refused to acknowledge the right of John to his new dignity, and declared in favour of Arthur. You must not suppose that he had any generosity of feeling for the fatherless boy. It merely suited his ambitious schemes to oppose the King of England. So John and the French king went to war about Arthur. He was a handsome boy at that time, only twelve years old. He was not born when his father Geoffrey had his brains trampled out at the tournament, and besides the misfortune of never having known a father's guidance and protection, he had the additional misfortune to have a foolish mother, Constance by name, lately married to her third husband. She took Arthur upon John's accession to the French king, who pretended to be very much his friend, and who made him a knight and promised him his daughter in marriage, but who cared so little about him in reality that, finding it in his interest to make peace with King John for a time, he did so without the least consideration for the poor little prince, and heartlessly sacrificed all his interests. Young Arthur, for two years afterwards, lived quietly, and in the course of that time his mother died. But the French king, then finding it in his interest to quarrel with King John again, again made Arthur his pretence, and invited the orphan boy to court. "'You know your rights, Prince,' said the French King, "'and you would like to be a King. Is it not so?' "'Truly,' said Prince Arthur, "'I should greatly like to be a King.' "'Then,' said Philip, "'you shall have two hundred gentlemen who are knights of mine, and with them you shall go to win back the provinces belonging to you, of which your uncle, the usurping King of England, has taken possession.' I myself, meanwhile, will head a force against him in Normandy." Poor Arthur was so flattered and so grateful that he signed a treaty with the crafty French king, agreeing to consider him his superior lord, and that the French king should keep for himself whatever he could take from King John. Now King John was so bad in all ways, and King Philip was so perfidious, that Arthur, between the two, might as well have been a lamb between a fox and a wolf. But, being so young, he was ardent and flushed with hope, and, when the people of Brittany, which was his inheritance, sent him five hundred more knights and five thousand foot-soldiers, he believed his fortune was made. The people of Brittany had been fond of him from his birth, and had requested that he might be called Arthur, in remembrance of that dimly famous English Arthur, of whom I told you early in this book whom they believed to have been the brave friend and companion of an old king of their own. They had tales among them about a prophet called Merlin, of the same old time, who had foretold that their own king should be restored to them after hundreds of years, and they believed that the prophecy would be fulfilled in Arthur, that the time would come when he would rule them with the crown of Brittany upon his head, and when neither king of France nor king of England would have any power over them. When Arthur found himself riding in a glittering suit of armour, on a richly caparisoned horse, at the head of his train of knights and soldiers, he began to believe this too, and to consider old Merlin a very superior prophet. He did not know, how could he, being so innocent and inexperienced, that his little army was a mere nothing against the power of the King of England. The French King knew it but the poor boy's fate was little to him, so that the King of England was worried and distressed. Therefore King Philip went his way into Normandy, and Prince Arthur went his way towards Mirebeau, a French town near Poitiers, both very well pleased. Prince Arthur went to attack the town of Mirebeau because his grandmother Eleanor, who had so often made her appearance in this history, and who had always been his mother's enemy, was living there, and because his knights said, Prince, if you can take her prisoner, you will be able to bring the king, your uncle, to terms. But she was not to be easily taken. She was old enough by this time—eighty—but she was as full of stratagem as she was full of years and wickedness. Receiving intelligence of young Arthur's approach, she shut herself up in a high tower, and encouraged her soldiers to defend it like men. Prince Arthur, with his little army, besieged the high tower— King John, hearing how matters stood, came up to the rescue with his army. So here was a strange family party—the boy prince besieging his grandmother, and his uncle besieging him. This position of affairs did not last long. One summer night King John, by treachery, got his men into the town, surprised Prince Arthur's force, took two hundred of his knights, and seized the prince himself in his bed. The knights were put in heavy irons, and driven away in open carts, drawn by bullocks to various dungeons where they were most inhumanly treated, and where some of them were starved to death. Prince Arthur was sent to the castle of Falaise. One day, while he was in prison at that castle, mournfully thinking it strange that one so young should be in so much trouble, and Looking out of a small window in the deep dark wall at the summer sky and the birds, the door was softly opened, and he saw his uncle the king standing in the shadow of the archway, looking very grim. "'Arthur,' said the king, with his wicked eyes more on the stone floor than on his nephew, "'will you not trust to the gentleness, the friendship, and the truthfulness of your loving uncle?' "'I will tell my loving uncle that,' replied the boy, "'when he does me right.' Let him restore to me my kingdom of England, and then come and ask me the question. The king looked at him, and went out. Keep that boy close prisoner, said he to the warden of the castle. Then the king took secret counsel with the worst of his nobles, how the prince was to be got rid of. Some said, Put out his eyes and keep him in prison, as Robert of Normandy was kept— others said have him stabbed others said have him hanged others have him poisoned king john feeling that in any case whatever was done afterwards it would be a satisfaction to his mind to have those handsome eyes burnt out that had looked at him so proudly while his own royal eyes were blinking at the stone floor sent certain ruffians to falaise to blind the boy with red-hot irons But Arthur so pathetically entreated them, and shed such piteous tears, and so appealed to Hubert de Borg, or Burr, the warden of the castle, who had a love for him, and was an honourable tender man, that Hubert could not bear it. To his eternal honour he prevented the torture from being performed, and, at his own risk, sent the savages away. The chafed and disappointed king bethought himself of the stabbing suggestion next and, with his shuffling manner and his cruel face, proposed it to one William de Bray. "'I am a gentleman, and not an executioner,' said William de Bray, and left the presence with disdain. But it was not difficult for a king to hire a murderer in those days. King John found one for his money, and sent him down to the castle of Falaise. "'On what errand dost thou come?' said Hubert to this fellow. "'To dispatch young Arthur,' he returned." Go back to him who sent thee, answered Hubert, and say that I will do it. King John, very well knowing that Hubert would never do it, but that he courageously sent this reply to save the prince or gain time, dispatched messengers to convey the young prisoner to the castle of Rouen. Arthur was soon forced from the good Hubert, of whom he had never stood in greater need than then, carried away by night and lodged in his new prison, where, through his grated window he could hear the deep waters of the River Seine rippling against the stone wall below. One dark night, as he lay sleeping—dreaming, perhaps, of rescue by those unfortunate gentlemen who were obscurely suffering and dying in his cause—he was roused, and bidden by his jailer to come down the staircase to the foot of the tower. He hurriedly dressed himself and obeyed. When they came to the bottom of the winding stairs, And the night air from the river blew upon their faces, the jailer trod upon his torch and put it out. Then Arthur, in the darkness, was hurriedly drawn into a solitary boat, and in that boat he found his uncle and one other man. He knelt to them, and prayed them not to murder him. Deaf to his entreaties, they stabbed him, and sunk his body in the river with heavy stones. When the spring morning broke. The tower-door was closed, the boat was gone, the river sparkled on its way, and never more was any trace of the poor boy beheld by mortal eyes. The news of this atrocious murder being spread in England awakened a hatred of the King—already odious for his many vices, and for his having stolen away and married a noble lady while his own wife was living—that never slept again through his whole reign. In Brittany the indignation was intense. Arthur's own sister Eleanor was in the power of John, and shut up in a convent at Bristol, but his half-sister Alice was in Brittany. The people chose her, and the murdered prince's father-in-law, the last husband of Constance, to represent them, and carried their fiery complaints to King Philip. King Philip summoned King John, as the holder of territory in France, to come before him and defend himself. King John, refusing to appear. King Philip declared him false, perjured, and guilty, and again made war. In a little time, by conquering the greater part of his French territory, King Philip deprived him of one-third of his dominions. And through all the fighting that took place King John was always found either to be eating and drinking like a gluttonous fool when the danger was at a distance, or to be running away like a beaten cur when it was near. You might suppose that when he was losing his dominions at this rate, and when his own nobles cared so little for him or his cause that they plainly refused to follow his banner out of England, he had enemies enough. But he made another enemy of the Pope, which he did in this way. The Archbishop of Canterbury dying, and the junior monks of that place, wishing to get the start of the senior monks in the appointment of his successor, met together at midnight, secretly elected a certain Reginald, and sent him off to Rome to get the Pope's approval. The senior monks and the King, soon finding this out, and being very angry about it, the junior monks gave way, and all the monks together elected the Bishop of Norwich, who was the King's favourite. The Pope, hearing the whole story, declared that neither election would do for him, and that he elected Stephen Langton. The monks submitting to the Pope, the King turned them all out bodily and banished them as traitors. The Pope sent three bishops to the King to threaten him with an interdict. The king told the bishops that if any interdict was laid upon his kingdom, he would tear out the eyes and cut off the noses of all the monks he could lay hold of, and send them over to Rome, in that undecorated state, as a present for their master. The bishops, nevertheless, soon published the interdict, and fled. After it had lasted a year, the pope proceeded to his next step, which was excommunication. King John was declared excommunicated with all the usual ceremonies. The king was so incensed at this, and was made so desperate by the disaffection of his barons and the hatred of his people, that it is said he even privately sent ambassadors to the Turks in Spain, offering to renounce his religion and hold his kingdom of them if they would help him. It is related that the ambassadors were admitted to the presence of the Turkish emir through long lines of Moorish guards and that they found the emir with his eyes seriously fixed on the pages of a large book, from which he never once looked up, that they gave him a letter from the king containing his proposals, and were gravely dismissed, that presently the emir sent for one of them, and conjured by him, by his faith in his religion, to say what kind of a man the king of England truly was, that... The ambassador thus pressed replied that the King of England was a false tyrant against whom his own subjects would soon rise, and that was quite enough for the emir. Money being in his position the next best thing to men, King John spared no means of getting it. He set on foot another oppressing and torturing of the unhappy Jews, which was quite in his way, and invented a new punishment for one wealthy Jew of Bristol. Until such a time as that you should produce a certain large sum of money, the king sentenced him to be imprisoned, and every day to have one tooth violently wrenched out of his head, beginning with the double teeth. For seven days the oppressed man bore the daily pain and lost the daily tooth, but on the eighth he paid the money. With the treasure raised in such ways, the king made an expedition into Ireland, where some English nobles had revolted. It was one of the very few places from which he did not run away, because no resistance was shown. He made another expedition into Wales, whence he did run away in the end, but not before he had got from the Welsh people as hostages twenty-seven young men of the best families, every one of whom he caused to be slain in the following year. To interdict and excommunication, the Pope now added his last sentence—deposition— he proclaimed John no longer king, absolved all subjects from their allegiance, and sent Stephen Langton and others to the King of France to tell him that, if he would invade England, he should be forgiven all his sins—at least should be forgiven them by the Pope, if that would do. As there was nothing that King Philip desired more than to invade England, he collected a great army at Rouen, and a fleet of seventeen hundred ships to bring them over. But, The English people, however bitterly they hated the King, were not a people to suffer invasion quietly. They flocked to Dover, where the English Standard was, in such great numbers to enrol themselves as defenders of their native land, that there were not provisions for them, and the King could only select and retain sixty thousand. But at this crisis the Pope, who had his own reasons for objecting to either King John or King Philip being too powerful, interfered he entrusted a legate, whose name was Pandolf, with the easy task of frightening King John. He sent him to the English camp from France to terrify him with exaggerations of King Philip's power and his own weakness in the discontent of the English barons and people. Pandolf discharged his commission so well that King John, in a wretched panic, consented to acknowledge that Stephen Langton, to resign his kingdom to God, St. Peter, and St. Paul, which meant the Pope, and to hold it ever afterwards by the Pope's leave, on payment of an annual sum of money. To this shameful contract he publicly bound himself in the church of the Knights Templars at Dover, where he laid at the legate's feet a part of the tribute, which the legate haughtily trampled upon. But they do say that this was merely a genteel flourish, and that he was afterwards seen to pick it up and pocket it there was an unfortunate prophet the name of peter who had greatly increased king john's terrors by predicting that he would be unknighted which the king supposed to signify that he would die before the feast of the ascension should be passed that was the day after this humiliation When the next morning came, and the King, who had been trembling all night, found himself alive and safe, he ordered the prophet, and his son, too, to be dragged through the streets at the tails of horses, and then hanged for having frightened him. As King John had now submitted, the Pope, to King Philip's great astonishment, took him under his protection, and informed King Philip that he found he could not give him leave to invade England the angry Philip resolved to do it without his leave, but he gained nothing and lost much, for the English, commanded by the Earl of Salisbury, went over in five hundred ships to the French coast, before the French fleet had sailed away from it, and utterly defeated the whole. The Pope then took off his three sentences, one after another, and empowered Stephen Langton publicly to receive King John into the favour of the Church again, and to ask him to dinner. The King who hated Langton with all his might and main, and with reason too, for he was a great and a good man, with whom such a king could have no sympathy, pretended to cry and to be very grateful. There was a little difficulty about settling how much the king should pay as a recompense to the clergy for the losses he had caused them, but the end of it was that the superior clergy got a good deal, and the inferior clergy got little or nothing, which has also happened since King John's time, I believe." When all these matters were arranged, the king in his triumph became more fierce and false and insolent to all around him than he had ever been. An alliance of sovereigns against King Philip gave him an opportunity of landing an army in France, with which he even took a town. But on the French king's gaining a great victory he ran away, of course, and made a truce for five years. And now the time approached, when he was to be still further humbled and made to feel, if he could feel anything, what a wretched creature he was. Of all men in the world, Stephen Langton seemed raised up by heaven to oppose and subdue him. When he ruthlessly burnt and destroyed the property of his own subjects, because their lords, the barons, would not serve him abroad, Stephen Langton fearlessly reproved and threatened him. When he swore to restore the laws of King Edward or the laws of King Henry I, Stephen Langton knew his falsehood and pursued him through all his evasions. When the barons met at the Abbey of St Edmundsbury to consider their wrongs and the King's oppressions, Stephen Langton roused them by his fervid words to demand a solemn charter of rights and liberties from their perjured master, and to swear one by one on the high altar that they would have it, or would wage war against him to the death. When the King hid himself in London from the barons, and was at last obliged to receive them, they told him roundly that they would not believe him, unless Stephen Langton became a surety that he would keep his word. When he took the cross to invest himself with some interest, and belong to something that was received with favour, Stephen Langton was still immovable. When he appealed to the Pope and the Pope wrote to Stephen Langton in behalf of his new favourite. Stephen Langton was deaf even to the Pope himself, and saw before him nothing but the welfare of England and the crimes of the English King. At Easter-time the barons assembled at Stamford in Lincolnshire in proud array, and, marching near to Oxford where the King was, delivered into the hands of Stephen Langton and two others a list of grievances. And these, they said, he must redress, or we will do it for ourselves. When Stephen Langton told the king as much, and read the list to him, he went half mad with rage. But that did him no more good than his afterwards trying to pacify the barons with lies. They called themselves and their followers the Army of God and the Holy Church. Marching through the country, with the people thronging to them everywhere, except at Northampton, where they failed in an attack upon the castle, they at last triumphantly set up their banner in London itself, whither the whole land, tired of the tyrant, seemed to flock to join them. Seven knights alone, of all the knights in England, remained with the King, who, reduced to this strait, at last sent the Earl of Pembroke to the barons to say that he approved of everything, and would meet them to sign their charter when they would. Then, said the barons, let the day be the 15th of June, and the place Runnymede. On Monday, the 15th of June, 1214, the King came from Windsor Castle, and the barons came from the town of Staines, and they met on Runnymede, which is still a pleasant meadow by the Thames, where rushes grow in the clear water of the winding river, and its banks are green with grass and trees. On the side of the barons came the general of their army, Robert Fitzwalter, and a great concourse of the nobility of England. With the king came, in all, some four-and-twenty persons of any note, most of whom despised him, and were merely his advisers in form. On that great day, and in that great company, the king signed Magna Charter, the great charter of England, by which he pledged himself to maintain the church in its rights— to relieve the barons of oppressive obligations as vassals of the crown of which the barons in their turn pledged themselves to relieve their vassals the people to respect the liberties of london and all other cities and boroughs to protect foreign merchants who came to england to imprison no man without a fair trial and to sell delay or deny justice to none As the barons knew his falsehood well, they further required, as their securities, that he should send out of his kingdom all his foreign troops, that for two months they should hold possession of the city of London, and Stephen Langton of the Tower, and that five and twenty of their body, chosen by themselves, should be a lawful committee to watch the keeping of the charter, and to make war upon him if he broke it. All this he was obliged to yield. He signed the charter with a smile, and, if he could have looked agreeable, would have done so as he departed from the splendid assembly. When he got home to Windsor Castle he was quite a madman in his helpless fury, and he broke the charter immediately afterwards. He sent abroad for foreign soldiers, and sent to the Pope for help, and plotted to take London by surprise while the barons should be holding a great tournament at Stamford, which they had agreed to hold there as the celebration of the charter. The barons, however, found him out and put it off. Then, when the barons desired to see him and tax him with his treachery, he made numbers of appointments with them, and kept none, and shifted from place to place, and was constantly sneaking and skulking about. At last he appeared at Dover to join his foreign soldiers, of whom numbers came into his pay, and with them he besieged and took Rochester Castle which was occupied by knights and soldiers of the barons. He would have hanged them, every one, but the leader of the foreign soldiers, fearful of what the English people might afterwards do to him, interfered to save the knights. Therefore the king was fain to satisfy his vengeance with the death of all the common men. Then he sent the Earl of Salisbury with one portion of his army to ravage the eastern part of his own dominions, while he carried fire and slaughter into the northern part, torturing, plundering killing and inflicting every possible cruelty upon the people, and every morning setting a worthy example to his men by setting fire, with his own monster hands, to the house where he had slept last night. Nor was this all for the Pope, coming to the aid of his precious friend, laid the kingdom under an interdict again, because the people took part with the barons. It did not much matter, for the people had grown so used to it now that they began to think nothing about it. It occurred to them—perhaps to Stephen Langton, too—that they could keep their churches open, and ring their bells, without the Pope's permission, as well as with it. So they tried the experiment, and found that it succeeded perfectly. It being now impossible to bear the country as a wilderness of cruelty, or longer to hold any terms with such a forsworn outlaw of a king, the barons sent to Louis, son of the French monarch, to offer him the English crown. Caring as little for the pope's excommunication of him if he accepted the offer, as it is possible his father may have cared for the pope's forgiveness of his sins, he landed at Sandwich, King John immediately running away from Dover, where he happened to be, and went on to London the Scottish King, with whom many of the northern English lords had taken refuge, numbers of the foreign soldiers, numbers of the barons, and numbers of the people went over to him every day, King John, the while, continually running away in all directions. The career of Louis was checked, however, by the suspicions of the barons, founded on the dying declaration of a French lord, that when the kingdom was conquered he was sworn to banish them as traitors and to give their estates to some of his own nobles. Rather than suffer this, some of the barons hesitated. Others even went over to King John. It seemed to be the turning point of King John's fortunes, for in his savage and murderous course he had now taken some towns and met with some success. But happily for England, and humanity, his death was near. Crossing a dangerous quicksand, called the Wash, not very far from Wisbeach, the tide came up and nearly drowned his army. He and his soldiers escaped, but, looking back from the shore when he was safe, he saw the roaring water sweep down in a torrent, overturn the wagons, horses and men that carried his treasure, and engulf them in a raging whirlpool from which nothing could be delivered. Cursing and swearing and gnawing his fingers, he went on to Swinstead Abbey where the monks set before him quantities of pears, and peaches, and new cider—some say poison, too, but there is very little reason to suppose so—of which he ate and drank in an immoderate and beastly way. All night he lay ill of a burning fever, and haunted with horrible fears. Next day they put him in a horse-litter, and carried him to Sleaford Castle, where he passed another night of pain and horror. Next day they carried him, with greater difficulty than on the day before, to the castle of Newark-upon-Trent, and there, on the eighteenth of October, in the forty-ninth year of his age, and the seventeenth of his vile reign, was an end of this miserable brute. End of chapter 14
1: Chapter Fifteen of A Child's History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Chapter Sixteen. England under Henry Third, called of Winchester. If any of the English barons remembered the murdered Arthur's sister, Eleanor, the fair maid of Brittany, shut up in her convent at Bristol, none among them spoke of her now, or maintained her right to the crown. The dead usurper's eldest boy, Henry by name, was taken by the Earl of Pembroke, the Marshal of England, to the city of Gloucester, and there crowned in great haste when he was only ten years old, as the crown itself had been lost with the king's treasure in the raging water, and as there was no time to make another, they put a circle of plain gold upon his head instead. We have been the enemies of this child's father, said Lord Pembroke, a good and true gentleman, to the few lords who were present, and he merited our ill-will. But the child himself is innocent, and his youth demands our friendship and protection. Those lords felt tenderly towards the little boy, remembering their own young children, and they bowed their heads and said, Long live King Henry the III. Next, A great council met at Bristol, revised Magna Charta, and made Lord Pembroke regent or protector of England, as the king was too young to reign alone. The next thing to be done was to get rid of Prince Louis of France, and to win over those English barons who were still ranged under his banner. He was strong in many parts of England, and in London itself, and he held, among other places, a certain castle called the Castle of Mount Sorel, in Leicestershire. To this fortress, after some skirmishing and truce-making, Lord Pembroke laid siege. Louis dispatched an army of six hundred knights and twenty thousand soldiers to relieve it. Lord Pembroke, who was not strong enough for such a force, retired with all his men. The army of the French prince, which had marched there with fire and plunder, marched away with fire and plunder, and came, in a boastful, swaggering manner, to Lincoln. The town submitted, but the castle in the town, held by a brave widow lady, named Nicola de Camville, whose property it was, made such a sturdy resistance "'that the French Count, in command of the army of the French Prince, "'found it necessary to besiege this castle. "'While he was thus engaged, "'word was brought to him that Lord Pembroke, "'with four hundred knights, two hundred and fifty men, "'with cross-bows, and a stout force, both of horse and foot, "'was marching towards him. "'What care I?' said the French Count. The Englishman is not so mad as to attack me and my great army in a walled town. But the Englishman did it for all that, and did it not so madly, but so wisely, that he decoyed the great army into the narrow, ill-paved lanes and byways of Lincoln, where its horse-soldiers could not ride in any strong body, and there he made such havoc with them, that the whole force surrendered themselves prisoners, except the Count, who said that he would never yield to any English traitor alive, and accordingly got killed. The end of this victory, which the English called, for a joke, the Fair of Lincoln, was the usual one in those times. The common men were slain without any mercy, and the knights and gentlemen paid ransom and went home. The wife of Louis, the fair Blanche of Castile, dutifully equipped a fleet of eighty good ships, and sent it over from France to her husband's aid. An English fleet of forty ships, some good and some bad, gallantly met them near the mouth of the Thames, and took or sunk sixty-five in one fight this great loss put an end to the French prince's hopes. A treaty was made at Lambeth, in virtue of which the English barons, who had remained attached to his cause, returned to their allegiance, and it was engaged on both sides that the prince and all his troops should retire peacefully to France." It was time to go, for war had made him so poor that he was obliged to borrow money from the citizens of London to pay his expenses home. Lord Pembroke afterwards applied himself to governing the country justly, and to healing the quarrels and disturbances that had arisen among men in the days of the bad King John, he caused Magna Charta to be still more improved, and so amended the forest laws that a peasant was no longer put to death for killing a stag in a royal forest, but was only imprisoned. It would have been well for England if it could have had so good a protector many years longer, but there was not to be. Within three years after the young king's coronation, Lord Pembroke died, and you may see his tomb at this day in the old temple church in London. The protectorship was now divided. Peter de Roches, whom King John had made bishop of Winchester, was entrusted with the care of the person of the young sovereign, and the exercise of the royal authority was confided to Earl Hubert de Burr. These two personages had from the first no liking for each other, and soon became enemies. When the young king was declared of age, Peter de Roches, finding that Hubert increased in power and favour, retired discontentedly and went abroad. For nearly ten years afterwards, Hubert had full sway alone. But ten years is a long time to hold the favour of a king. This king too, as he grew up, showed a strong resemblance to his father, in feebleness, inconsistency, and irresolution. The best that can be said of him is that he was not cruel. De Roche's coming home again, after ten years, and being a novelty, the king began to favour him and to look coldly on Hubert. Wanting money besides, and having made Hubert rich, he began to dislike Hubert. At last he was made to believe, or pretended to believe, that Hubert had misappropriated some of the royal treasure, and ordered him to furnish an account of all he had done in his administration. Besides which, the foolish charge was brought against Hubert that he had made himself the king's favourite by magic, Hubert very well knowing that he could never defend himself against such nonsense, and that his old enemy must be determined on his ruin. Instead of answering, the charges fled to Merton Abbey. Then the King, in a violent passion, sent for the Mayor of London, and said to the Mayor, Take twenty thousand citizens, and drag me Hubert de Burr out of that Abbey, and bring him here. The Mayor posted off to do it, but the Archbishop of Dublin, who was a friend of Hubert's, warning the King that, an abbey was a sacred place, and that if he committed any violence there, he must answer for it to the church. The king changed his mind and called the mayor back, and declared that Hubert should have four months to prepare his defence, and should be safe and free during that time. Hubert, who relied upon the king's word, though I think he was old enough, to have known better, came out of Merton Abbey upon these conditions, and journeyed away to see his wife, a Scottish princess, who was then at St. Edmundsbury. Almost as soon as he had departed from the sanctuary, his enemies persuaded the weak king to send out one Sir Godfrey de Crancombe, who commanded three hundred vagabonds called the Black Band with orders to seize him. They came up with him at a little town in Essex, called Brentwood, when he was in bed. He leaped out of bed, got out of the house, fled to the church, ran up to the altar, and laid his hand upon the cross. Sir Godfrey and the black band, caring neither for church, altar, nor cross, dragged him forth to the church door, with their drawn swords flashing round his head, and sent for a smith to rivet a set of chains upon him. When the smith, I wish I knew his name, was brought, all dark and swarthy with the smoke of his forge, and panting with the speed he had made, and the black band falling aside to show him the prisoner, cried with a loud uproar, "'Make the fetters heavy!' make them strong. The smith dropped upon his knee, but not to the black band, and said, This is the brave Earl Hubert de Bur, who fought at Dover Castle, and destroyed the French fleet, and has done his country much good service. You may kill me, if you like, but I will never make a chain for Earl Hubert de Bur." The black band never blushed, or they might have blushed at this. They knocked the smith about from one to another, and swore at him, and tied the earl on horseback, undressed as he was, and carried him off to the Tower of London. The bishops, however, were so indignant at the violation of the sanctuary of the church, that the frightened king soon ordered the black band to take him back again, at the same time commanding the sheriff of Essex to prevent his escaping out of Brentwood Church. Well, the sheriff dug a deep trench all round the church, and erected a high fence, and watched the church night and day. The black band and their captain watched it too, like three hundred and one black walls. For thirty-nine days, Hubert de Boer remained within. At length, upon the fortieth day, cold and hunger were too much for him, and he gave himself up to the black band, who carried him off, for the second time, to the tower. When his trial came on, he refused to plead, but at last it was arranged that he should give up all the royal lands which had been bestowed upon him and should be kept at the castle of Devizes, in what was called free prison, in charge of four knights appointed by four lords. There he remained almost a year, until, learning that a follower of his old enemy the bishop was made keeper of the castle, and fearing that he might be killed by treachery, he climbed the ramparts one dark night, dropped from the top, of the high castle wall into the moat, and coming safely to the ground, took refuge in another church. From this place he was delivered by a party of horse dispatched, to his help by some nobles, who were by this time in revolt against the king, and assembled in Wales. He was finally pardoned and restored to his estates, but he lived privately, and never more aspired to a high post in the realm, or to a high place in the king's favour, and thus end, more happily than the stories of many favourites of kings, the adventures of Earl Hubert de Boer. The nobles, who had risen in revolt, were stirred up to rebellion by the overbearing conduct of the Bishop of Winchester, who, finding that the king secretly hated the great charter which had been forced from his father, did his utmost to confirm him in that dislike, and in the preference he showed to foreigners over the English. Of this, and of his even publicly declaring that the barons of England were inferior to those of France, the English lords complained with such bitterness that the king, finding them well supported by the clergy, became frightened for his throne, and sent away the bishop and all his foreign associates. On his marriage, however, with Eleanor, a French lady, the daughter of the Count of Provence, he openly favoured the foreigners again, and so many of his wife's relations came over and made such an immense family party at court, and got so many good things, and pocketed so much money, and were so high with the English whose money they pocketed, that the bolder English barons murmured openly about a clause there was in the great charter, which provided for the banishment of unreasonable favourites. But the foreigners only laughed disdainfully, and said, What are your English laws to us? King Philip of France had died, and had been succeeded by Prince Louis, who had also died after a short reign of three years, and had been succeeded by his son of the same name, so moderate and just a man that he was not the least in the world like a king, as kings went. Isabella, King Henry's mother, wished very much, for a certain spite she had, that England should make war against this king, and, as King Henry was a mere puppet in anybody's hands who knew how to manage his feebleness, she easily carried her point with him. But the Parliament were determined to give him no money for such a war, so to defy the Parliament he packed up thirty large casks of silver. I don't know how he got so much. I dare say he screwed it out of the miserable Jews and put them aboard ship and went away himself to carry war into France, accompanied by his mother and his brother Richard, Earl of Cornwall, who was rich and clever. But he only got well beaten and came home The good humor of the parliament was not restored by this. They reproached the king with wasting the public money to make greedy foreigners rich and were so stern with him.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you